Welcome to Gray Matters, where we unpack how medical management is rarely black or white. And we go on deep dives along the way. I'm Dr. Jason Freed, and I'm a hematologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Allie Trainer, and I'm a pulmonary and critical care fellow at the Harvard Combined Program at MGH and Beth Israel Deaconess. So this week, we have a special guest joining us, Dr. Elliot Tapper, who's a hepatologist at University of Michigan. He posted a thread on Twitter a while back about a patient that he took care of. And Allie, you and I both independently read it and thought, okay, we have to have him on to talk through this case with us. Yeah, exactly. I'll let Dr. Tapper introduce the case. A woman uh, in her 50s who has alcohol-related cirrhosis. And the main reason why she presented for care was because of ascites. And she also had hydrothorax. So when we first met her, our goal was to try to control her volume overload with diuretics. The problem was that as we tried to increase those, the dosage of those medications, we started to run into trouble with kidney injury or hyperkalemia, hyponatremia. She was diuretic resistant. So she was, in a given week, getting both a paracentesis and a thoracentesis. And for her, the main complicating factor was that she had an elevated INR, something like 1.9 to 2.1. It would bounce around. Yikes. Weekly paracentesis and thoracentesis. Also, hepatic hydrothorax has always sort of baffled me that the fluid is somehow getting from your abdomen to your chest cavity. Like, you have a diaphragm in the way. <laughs> right? I was always confused by this too, but what happens is that you have these teeny tiny defects in your diaphragm, and when you breathe, you create a negative pleural pressure that sucks some of that fluid from your abdomen up into your pleural space. I mean, I guess that makes sense, but it's crazy. Totally. And, and so this woman is getting weekly paras and thoras. And then what ended up happening was she would get multiple units of FFP for her elevated INR to reduce her bleeding risk. And this is what got us interested because we see and do this all the time. We give products prior to procedure with the intention of reducing bleeding risk. But should we be doing this? Okay, we're going to jump right in here with deep type one. So we're talking about giving FFP to reduce bleeding risk. But is the bleeding risk with paracentesis or thoracentesis even high? Like, do I actually need to be worried here? We have a wealth of old and new data that shows that procedures like paracentesis, thoracentesis, these are really safe. And in order to cause bleeding, effectively, what you have to do is lacerate a large vessel for which there is no transfusion blood product that can prevent bleeding in that case. So focus all you want for safety. So when you're doing a paracentesis, quickly pop on the vascular probe and look for the inferior epigastrics. And if they aren't where you're intending for your needle tract to go, then your risk of bleed is exceedingly low. Similarly, for thoracentesis, we know our landmarks and we know that the neurovascular bundle runs beneath the rib. So if you go directly over the rib, you should be avoiding the blood vessels. Okay. And do you know what data he was referring to? Yeah, this is one of my favorite studies to cite on rounds. It was published in Hepatology in 2004 and looked at 1,100 large-volume paracentesis in patients with cirrhosis with a range of platelet and INR values, with the lowest platelet count being 19 and the highest INR, 8.7, and there were no significant bleeding events. Wow. None? <laughs> right? <laughs> but like, who was doing the paras in this study? It was a resident who's done one para before on a simulator or what? 
Great point. So this study was in trained high volume providers who were doing dozens of these per year. Okay, so paracentesis can be very safe despite thrombocytopenia and elevated INR if you know what you're doing. Exactly. And this informs the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease Guidelines, which state that because the bleeding risk with paracentesis is so low, they do not recommend giving FFP prior to the procedure. Okay. That was the quickest, most straightforward deep dive we've ever done. Bleeding risk is low. Don't give FFP. So why bring this to the gray matters table? (laughs) Well, we've talked a lot about paracentesis, but we don't have as much data to go on for thoracentesis. Do we have anything to go off with thoracentesis? (laughs) Well, the Society of Interventional Radiology has these consensus guidelines that recommend not checking INR or having a specific threshold goal for patients with cirrhosis prior to a thoracentesis, but this is based on expert opinion. Interesting. So any idea what they based the expert opinion on? Well, it was mostly the fact that thoracentesis is overall a low bleeding risk procedure, and so they lumped it in with other low bleeding risk procedures. But a caveat to keep in mind is that they didn't have any studies specifically in patients with cirrhosis to base this recommendation on. Ah. Yeah. So I think the bigger question too is that although we have data telling us that the bleeding risk is low, this data doesn't tell me what actually happens when I give FFP to a patient with cirrhosis. Okay. So for deep dive two, we want to figure out does giving FFP to a patient with cirrhosis actually improve their bleeding risk? And therefore, can we justify giving it prior to paracentesis or maybe thoracentesis where we have less data? Yeah, maybe a good place to start is just a reminder of what FFP is. Here's Dr. Alice Ma, a hematologist from UNC. So FFP or fresh frozen plasma is what you are left with when you take the cellular elements of blood and spin them out. So you have no platelets, no white cells, and no red cells. So predominantly water, proteins, and um, so you'll have albumin and clotting factors, pro-clotting factors and anti-clotting factors, fibrinogen, all the factors, wow, 1 through 13, and um, protein C, protein S, antithrombin. Yeah, I don't think we always think of that when giving FFP, you know, that you're giving both pro and anticoagulant factors. So good to keep in mind. Yeah. And then back to the question we first posed, which is, will giving FFP to a patient with cirrhosis reduce their bleeding risk from a procedure? Yeah, I've heard it said a lot and then adopted it as part of my vernacular as well, that we're going to, quote, give FFP to correct the INR. So first off, that just gives me the cold willies when I hear that when you say, okay, the INR is elevated and you are going to give FFP, what you're really trying to say there is we think the patient has a risk of bleeding and we're going to try to ameliorate the risk of bleeding by replacing clotting factors that are in FFP. So then the question becomes, what is the risk of bleeding and why is the INR elevated? And does the elevated INR really correlate with the risk of bleeding? So the INR is branded as a tool to assess bleeding risk. And in fact, we give people medication to reduce their ability to clot due to conditions like atrial fibrillation. But the problem is that we have misapplied that association 
to people with cirrhosis. While the INR is really only measuring those procoagulant factors, it's missing the bigger picture in people with cirrhosis who have an equal, if not greater, decrease in anticoagulant factors. So the assay is only telling us one part of the story. So because people have a mistaken but emotional attachment to the idea that it reflects auto-anticoagulation in people with cirrhosis, in fact, it has nothing to do with in vivo coagulation function. So what that means is the INR is only telling us about the procoagulant factors 1 through 12, and it doesn't tell us about the anticoagulant factor levels, protein C, S, and antithrombin which can also be low in patients with cirrhosis. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, if, if I want to know in a patient on a warfarin how dangerous a procedure will be from a bleeding perspective, their INR is a very good indicator. But if I'm trying to assess the risk of bleeding in a patient with cirrhosis, the INR is not a good indicator for that because there are so many other factors at play. And on top of that, Dr. Ma taught me that there's so much more that goes into bleeding risk for a patient with cirrhosis that FFP won't even touch. So the question is, is the patient with cirrhosis at risk of bleeding? And the answer is, of course they are. But why are they at risk of bleeding? And that's a complex question. So the first reason is that they have hyperfibrinolysis, and that is not going to be fixed with two units of FFP. The second is that they are hypofibrinogenemic. That is very, very unlikely as well to be fixed by two units of FFP. Three, they have platelet dysfunction. Again, not greatly fixed by FFP. And three, they're thrombocytopenic. Um, and only at the very bottom of the list do they low levels of clotting factor. And if you actually measure their levels of clotting factor, most of their levels of clotting factor are in the hemostatic range. There is a ton to unpack there, but I think one of my main takeaways is just how complex the coagulation status of a patient with cirrhosis is. Right, and if you take a patient with cirrhosis who has all the abnormalities we just mentioned to varying degrees, and you give plasma, which has all of the proteins, you can't always predict what the net response is going to be. Yeah. I asked Dr. Tapper what actually happens when you give people with cirrhosis FFP. There are some people, about one in a hundred, where you're actually going to increase their thrombin generation. But for every one of those people, there's at least 10 who have a decrease in their thrombin generation, probably because we're diluting the biological space in which that hemostatic cascade is occurring. And for the vast majority of people, there's no difference whatsoever on coagulation function. And that doesn't mean that it's benign, right? So to summarize, the coagulation status of a patient with cirrhosis is complicated. You have increased fibrinolysis, low fibrinogen, rhombocytopenia, decreased pro and anticoagulant proteins. So we don't always know the balance of the pro and anticoagulant factors. And giving FFP is a blunt tool that will not necessarily reduce the bleeding risk in a patient with cirrhosis. Okay, so from deep dive one, we know that the bleeding risk is already low. And from deep dive two, FFP isn't going to reduce it further. So why are we doing this? There's a whole series in a journal called Things That We Do For No Reason. But in fact, it's not true. It's things that we do for a reason, that we were raised to believe in these sorts of things. They are part of our upbringing. They're part of our culture. And challenging that is, is very difficult. And it will be very difficult for patients with cirrhosis for a number of reasons. Number one is that 
there is depth that's involved with this decision. It's not like it's a uh, walk in the park to do a procedure in somebody who has a high risk of dying in the next seven to 90 days. So as long as there is that, it will always be very difficult to overcome it simply through education. And we aren't always the one doing the procedure, right? Like Sometimes we are, but other times we're referring our patient to another service to do the paracentesis. So they're taking on the risk. And we're like, okay, yeah, this patient has an INR3 and platelets of 20, but you don't need to give any product. And then they're like, well, that's easy for you to say. You're not the one putting the needle in, bro. Well, they're worried. They're worried that there will be a complication of their uh, procedure. And I think by and large, clinicians are more worried that if a complication were to arise, if we could have done something to prevent it, uh, then we have sinned. And these sins of omission are weighted more heavily in our mind than sins of commission, which is exactly what my patient suffered from. So he's foreshadowing what's to come with this patient, which we'll get into a bit later. But before we get there, it might be helpful to delve a bit more into why we're doing these things, even if we have data and guidelines telling us that it isn't necessary. There are a lot of things at play here, but I think a big one could be confirmation bias. Do you want to share a bit more about what you mean specifically in this context? So there's data out there saying giving FFP is not going to reduce the bleeding risk. But let's say, I don't know that, and I believe FFP will reduce the bleeding risk. And so I give FFP and they don't bleed from the procedure. Therefore, I conclude that my giving the FFP preventing the bleeding. Okay. And how do you think this would play out if you give FFP and the patient does bleed? I mean, I think confirmation bias can be so strong that even in that scenario, you might still conclude that giving FFP was the right thing because maybe you'll say to yourself, oh, thank goodness I gave FFP or the bleeding could have been a lot worse. Yeah, I agree. And so then the question is, what do we do here? And and again, we aren't always the one doing the procedure. I mean, it can be really hard to combat your own cognitive biases and cultural influences, but it can be even more complicated when working with colleagues. So it was interesting to hear how Dr. Tapper tries to navigate this scenario. The first is to take ownership of the procedure, which at my center, that's effectively what we've done for the vast majority of paracentesis. Number two is that if you are relying on another procedure list, either you have to give them time to become familiar and comfortable with uh, increasing the INR threshold, or you use you build a relationship with them where you can negotiate to try to come up with a way to both communicate your understanding and help get them on board. But ultimately, you're deferring to them. So I'll always reach out and try my best. But if they're the ones that are helping my patients, I I must settle for that case. And so for Dr. Tapper's patient that we're talking about, she lived far from the main hospital campus. So she was getting her procedures at a satellite location. So option one we were talking about, take ownership of the procedure yourself, was not possible here. And the physicians doing the procedure were in the practice of giving FFP prior to paracentesis and thoracentesis for elevated INR. And for her, this resulted in increased volume overload in the days that would follow. And not infrequently, she would end up with either flash pulmonary edema and once even had transfusion reaction. Oh, man. So for deep dive three, I think we should get into what are the actual risks associated with giving FFP in order to educate ourselves, but also frame our discussion with procedural colleagues. 
Okay. I'm glad we're talking about this because I can be sympathetic to that physician who is giving FFP prior to the para and thora because you know, sometimes I'm the one doing the thoracentesis and I, I know the data behind para and just to play devil's advocate, I can understand getting nervous about causing a patient with cirrhosis to bleed from a thoracentesis. So, you know, maybe it's okay to just give a little FFP just in case. I say that's incorrect, Star Ranger. Um, you know, uh, FFP kills people. You know, trolley, taco, absolutely. It's just terrible. Plus, you know, if, yes, blah, it does. It, it, stop it. <laughs> Holding no punches. But I think I have to admit she's right. I mean, it's not without risk. Do you know, Jason, what the transfusion risk is with FFP? I mean, overall risk isn't zero, but it is rare. Like for an allergic or anaphylactic transfusion reaction, we're talking less than 0.001% for FFP transfusion. For trolley, the data is harder to pin down, but the risk is still fairly low. The risk is so low that it's hard to say it's reckless or negligent to give FFP to a patient with cirrhosis prior to procedure based upon that information alone. But we do need to keep in mind the risk isn't zero. Okay. And then the other risk we talked about is volume overload, which we know this patient was having after getting her FFP transfusions, but those bags of FFP look pretty small. So is she really getting volume overload from a few units of FFP? Yeah, good good question. I mean, each unit of FFP is about 250 milliliters. So to make our math easy, let's say she gets four units of FFP. So that'd be about a liter. And I'm guessing she's getting more than one liter of fluid taken off with the para and the thora. So she has more coming out than coming in. So can we really say, again, she's getting volume overloaded from the FFP? I think the important thing we aren't factoring in when we give FFP is that most of that stays intravascular, at least initially. There's this whole Five Pearls episode on fluids that I highly recommend. But long story short, giving four units of FFP is probably more similar to giving nearly four liters of normal saline. Since again, most of that FFP is staying intravascular. It's really hard to justify when you put it that way, because I would never give four liters of IV fluid to a stable patient with cirrhosis who has ascites and a pleural effusion. Right? Dr. Tapper also shared this really interesting article with me that portal pressures increase almost linearly with increasing blood volume. And we'll link to it on our show notes. That's a great point because if her refractory ascites and pleural effusions are a consequence of portal hypertension, and then we're giving product that is going to stay almost entirely intravascular and exacerbate portal hypertension, it feels like we're just chasing our tails. Okay. So summarizing here, FFP, just like any blood product, carries risks of transfusion reactions, including trolley. But the big thing we really need to keep in mind for patients with cirrhosis is giving FFP, because almost all of it stays intravascular, will lead to increased portal pressure. Okay, so back to our patient. She's getting frequent paras and thoras and getting FFP prior to these. Dr. Tapper walks us through what happened next. So after she was admitted multiple times, including twice to the ICU at an outside hospital, we needed to come up with a way of short-circuiting this vicious cycle of needing a procedure and then having complications due to the management of her so-called cirrhosis coagulopathy. And for us, the lesser of two evils was to place an indwelling catheter in her right pleural space. Now, typically, you get nervous about things like infection. So you try to withhold indwelling catheters in people, particularly people that you're hoping to get onto the liver transplant wait list. But for her, the cumulative risk of infection was so much lower than 
the ever-present risk of volume overload and ICU care. All right. So this was the other thing about this case that really caught my eye and what I want to do our fourth deep dive on. Because I had always heard said, fairly dogmatically, that we do not place indwelling pleural catheters in patients with cirrhosis. But this patient got an indwelling pleural catheter. Indwelling catheter is not first-line therapy for hydrothorax. If your patient is a candidate for TIPS, their heart is working, they don't have severe uncontrolled HE, then TIPS it is. Then second, you try to get away with diuretics, and if they rarely every few months require a thoracentesis, then that's always going to be preferred. But what the guidelines are saying is that while we don't want to put catheters in our patients, sometimes we have to, and it's okay to accommodate those patients. So it sounds like a pleural catheter shouldn't be the first line thing we do for hepatic hydrothorax, but it doesn't mean you never do it for hepatic hydrothorax. Yeah, and if we think about our patient, she did have some factors that make it seem like an indwelling catheter might be warranted. She's needing weekly procedures, diuretics aren't working, she isn't a TIPS candidate, and it's hard for her to get to those weekly appointments. And then in terms of negatives, she's ended up in the ICU because of blood product administration. So it seems like there's a lot of good reasons why we might consider a pleural catheter. But on the other hand, this dogma of avoiding them must have emerged for a reason, right? Yeah, maybe the dogma came from the fact that chest tubes are associated with high morbidity, clinical deterioration, and sometimes death. But those chest tubes were large bore, surgical, continuously draining. But here we're talking about indwelling pleural catheters, which are different. Uh, So maybe we were inappropriately extrapolating from what happened with large bore surgical chest tubes. Yeah, exactly. So I talked to Dr. Mihir Parikh, who is an interventional pulmonologist at Beth Israel Deaconess, and here is what he had to say about this dogma that we shouldn't place indwelling catheters in patients with cirrhosis. I've never, I don't think I've said that. It, it certainly, it certainly exists out there. And I definitely heard it when I was a house staff and a fellow as well, too. Uh, and we still hear it now, the infection risk of long-term catheters uh, that, you know, I think that other commonly one, uh, commonly stated one is the risk of malnutrition from, you know, chronic protein loss uh, from a pleural catheter. And so it's, it's hard. I think it's, it's easy to, um, to, hold on to these because they've been around for so long. And because, and also the reason it's easy to hold on to these is there's not a lot of evidence to guide them or to refute them. So it can be an issue. Now, I've heard the rationale before about malnutrition being that you're getting all this protein loss from the frequent drainage. Does that hold up? Yeah, I actually think this is a rumor that's been propagated. I have not seen any evidence uh, to suggest this, but it was something I taught and uh, I was taught and I held on to for a while. But I think now I think it's 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 just part of lore. I think you know trying to understand you know what con- contribution the plural drainage has in the larger scheme of you know patients' nutrition, especially with advanced cirrhosis, is is I think a hard thing to pin down. So it sounds like it's not the protein thing, but whenever there's a foreign body in the body, we have to think about infection risk. I mean, that's true, but we place indwelling catheters in patients for various reasons all the time. So why should we be thinking about the infection risk differently for patients with cirrhosis? As I've become uh, sort of more advanced or more senior, I think I've, I've come to appreciate the complications a bit more. And, you know, once these pleural catheters get infected, it, it can be a real pain, you know, especially in these hepatic hydrothoraces, because what you like to deal with in, a, in an infected pleural catheter is you like for the patients to chlorodice, meaning for that space to be fully evacuated and to remain evacuated in order to clear the infection. The problem is with hepatic thorax patients of all recurrent pleural fusions, they're the worst, they're the hardest to pleurodice just because the volume is so high uh, and the 
sort of the output is so high on average in these patients that you never really have an opportunity for the pleural surfaces to oppose and to pleurody successfully. So uh, management becomes really complicated and you're oftentimes just trying to treat through with prolonged antibiotic courses with maybe no real likelihood of success. And so that's why I do have humility for that. Okay. So the infection risk concern with indwelling pleural catheters at least does hold up. Yeah. And we don't have any randomized controlled trials to look at the role for pleural catheter in these patients, but Dr. Tapper did bring up some interesting data. And then you bring up the retrospective single center studies about what happens to people when they have a, a, a tube placed. And these are helpful in a couple of ways. One is that they typically show you that some people still get transplanted when these are placed. So good good centers are using this when they need to sparingly, and they're helping patients in the long run. And then two, you're also observing that uh, patients get sicker over time. And of course, we don't really have a comparison arm. Sometimes you can say, well, let's look at the intermittent thoracentesis arm. But of course, we are if we could have gotten by with intermittent thoracentesis, we would have. So there is something quite ill about that patient that we decided to leap to the uh, indwelling catheter. And in the absence of a comparison arm, I will simply tell you that the natural history of hydrothorax and refractory ascites without a liver transplant is not great. So sounds like these patients have a pretty poor prognosis to begin with. And for our patient, it seems like they ran out of other options. And so they moved forward to an indwelling pleural catheter. So then I'm curious, what ended up happening? So the interesting thing uh, that we expected was that we were going to have to closely monitor her for the risk of over uh, removing fluid, ending up dehydrated because she'd always be removing fluid from the pleural space. And in fact, she was removing something like a liter per day uh, for uh, about a week. But then on the second week, the amount of volume that she could pull was less and less. And it was a very short period of time before the overall amount of fluid that was coming out was so low that it almost didn't make sense to leave that catheter in. And we realized in retrospect that probably the number one contributor to her volume overload was the things that we were doing to her. The extra FFP and albumin that she was getting with all of her procedures was simply dumping right back into her pleural space resulting in an everlasting pleural effusion. So after a while, uh, we were able to get to a place where we could keep her uh, roughly euvolemic with simply the water pills. Uh, She would require intermittent drainage. And fortunately for her, a match was found and she was able to have a liver transplant. This is an incredibly happy ending. For the first time ever in Gray Matters. So uh, I keep close tabs on uh, on my patients who now, at this point, several years after her transplant, she only follows up every six months or so. But when she does, I get a little note from her current transplant hepatologist telling me how she's doing and what she's up to. And uh, it warms my heart twice per year. <laughs> Yeah, happy ending indeed. But what a humbling plot twist that we were trying to help her with FFP, but we were the problem all along. As soon as she stopped getting FFP, her volume overload completely resolved. Yeah, it is wild. You know, 
I'm, I'm trying to decide if there's a generalizable learning point for this because not everyone is getting this kind of harm. A, a lot of people just have bad ideas independent of products that we're giving. So I think what was remarkable about this story was that this is not a common story. I mean, maybe, but I'm also wondering, maybe this is a common story and we just aren't aware of it. Certainly possible. It's hard to say this is happening to every patient with cirrhosis who gets FFP prior to procedure, but it does at least illustrate quite dramatically that the risk of FFP is not just theoretical. Like here's a real person for whom unnecessary FFP use caused volume overload and ICU stay and unnecessary procedures. Yeah, I think a take home here too is just how many downstream effects there were for this patient because of the FFP. She had multiple procedures because of FFP, not just the weekly thora and para, but the pleural catheter too. I mean, if she wasn't getting the FFP, she never would have even needed the pleural catheter. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, if she hadn't been getting the FFP, the whole second half of our episode wouldn't have needed to happen. Yeah, I'm so glad we brought this case to Gray Matters because there's so much nuance and we learned a lot about giving FFP and placing indwelling pleural catheters. But these are just two examples of common practices, but with such wide reaching effects. And it makes me wonder how many other similar instances there are out there of things that are common practice, but could be causing our patients harm. Yeah. I mean, it's just such an important reminder to be humble and think about the harm we might be doing despite our best intentions, and that it's really important to make sure we understand where dogmas or recommendations come from. I mean, this sounds so obvious to say, but I guess my takeaway is we should know the rationale for what we're doing. <laughs> I, I mean, it sounds obvious because it is, but realistically, you know, we need to rely on these common practices sometimes because it is simply not possible to make it through your workday questioning every single common practice, doing a lit search, and essentially creating a Gray Matters episode. You would never make it through the day. Yeah, definitely right about that. So then I guess the question is, how and when should we be doing this? Because like you said, maybe there are a lot of things like this. Yeah, I don't know if I fully hone my radar, but I think I'm much more likely to question something that's invasive or time-consuming or when something isn't having the result I'm expecting. Like, I was never able to lower the INR of a patient with cirrhosis by giving FFP prior to a procedure. Yeah, I like those points. And I think there's also like a risk-benefit analysis on the opportunity cost of your time. Yeah, do you have an example of what you mean by that? The one that first comes to mind for me is people taking vitamin C with their iron for iron deficiency. There was a time that that was so commonly done, and I think a lot of people might still be doing it or recommending it. Now, there has since been a randomized controlled trial, and we now know it doesn't help with iron absorption. But Honestly, if people are taking a little extra vitamin C, it's really no big deal. So thinking of risk benefit for how you spend your time, it probably wouldn't have spent a lot of time looking into vitamin C because the likelihood of harm in either direction is pretty low. I think that's great advice. So in general, I guess it might be a good idea to look into something if there's a higher likelihood of harm. And on the other hand, if the risk of harm is low, maybe save that for a rainy day. All right. Should we recap? All right. So in Deep Dive 1, we talked about how in the hands of someone who routinely does these procedures, both paracentesis and thoracentesis have low bleeding risk at a broad range of INR and platelet values, as long as you take measures to avoid hitting major blood vessels. In Deep Dive 2, we learned that giving FFP will not reduce the bleeding risk of a patient with cirrhosis. In Deep Dive 3, we discussed that giving FFP contains risks, trolley, taco, and other transfusion reactions. And particularly in patients with cirrhosis, giving blood products raises the portal pressure, so we should always be cautious and give with a clear indication. In Deep Dive 4, we challenge the dogma that indwelling pleural catheters should never be placed in patients with cirrhosis. While there is an infection risk, pleural catheters are sometimes appropriate in carefully selected patients who are diuretic refractory, not a TIPS candidate, and requiring frequent thoracentesis. 
And that is a wrap for today, but we also love going through other cases. So if you have a case that you want to bring to Gray Matters, please let us know. If you found this episode helpful, please share with your team and colleagues and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. If you have a case you'd like to bring on air, please email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.